Hi, it's Elise Lunen, host of Pulling the Thread. Today's guest is my wonderful friend, the artist Alexandra Grant. We talk about the act of making anything, really, along with her new book about love. Robert Half Research indicates 9 out of 10 hiring managers are having difficulty hiring. If you have open roles, chances are you're feeling this too. That's why you need Robert Half. Our specialized recruiting professionals engage with our proprietary AI to connect businesses of all sizes with highly skilled talent in finance and accounting, technology, marketing and creative, legal, and administrative and customer support. At Robert Half, we know talent. Visit roberthalf.com today. Hi, it's Elise Lunen, host of Pulling the Thread. I'm an author, podcast host, and parent who built a long career in media. I grew up in a state of perpetual curiosity, investigating the world and asking a lot of questions. In this show, I chat with culture-defining leaders, thinkers, and experts about this rare moment that we find ourselves in and how to think about our own lives and experiences within a larger social and spiritual construct. Now I'm making something that I didn't imagine. It's not going like I imagined, but it's going. And then when you finish the object thing book, then it has the power to take you on a journey that you never would have dreamt had you kept the idea in your interior museum. And then that shifts your imagination. You have more, more artwork gets collected in the interior museum. And, but, and then as you grow older as a maker, you see that distinction, right? The distinction between the beautiful interior museum and the museum in reality of things that you've actually made and done and the stories attached to the making and doing that have changed your life. So says my dear friend, Alexandra Grant. Alexandra is a fascinating person and talented visual artist whose work examines language and written text through painting, drawing, sculpture, video, and other media, and has been exhibited at institutions across the world, at Los Angeles County Museum of Art, or LACMA, here, along with MOCA, as well as the Pasadena Museum of California Art, among others. In 2008, she created the Grant Love Project, which has raised awareness and funds for various arts nonprofits through the gift and sale of her iconic love artwork. In 2017, she and her life partner, Keanu Reeves, co-founded X Artist Books, an artist-centric publishing house helping artists and readers alike explore the creation of artwork and ideas outside the traditional model of book publishing. That wasn't enough, Alexandra is currently leading the first NFT project of the Hollywood sign for the Hollywood Chamber of Commerce and is an advisor to the Futureverse Foundation. She joins me today to meditate on art and love as we celebrate the release of her book, Love, a visual history of the Grant Love Project. A comprehensive history of the foundation she started 15 years ago, the book is a visual collection of paintings, prints, sculptures, textiles, jewelry, and architecture gathered by Grant and other collaborators to explore the timeless question, what is love? Our conversation is a peek into our regular walk and talks, a beloved routine through which we have been able to explore, reflect, and build an incredibly meaningful friendship. Today, we discuss what it means to be looked at and perceived by the public, especially as the partner of one of the most famous actors of our generation, 
the inevitable disappointment that results from taking the beautiful ideas in our heads and attempting to turn them into something physical, and owning our native talents in the pursuit of a creative life, whether or not we fit into the conventions of being an artist. You have to create opportunities between the cracks, she tells us. Okay, let's get to our conversation. I feel like it's fun to let people in on our our little walk and talks and chit chats about everything. About everything. <laughs> about everything. You know, it's so funny because one of the things that I really in a life where we balance having a private life and a public life and understand both like our friendship has meant so much to me because we've both been in the public eye but we also value our privacy and so I feel like we're we're going on the red carpet with our friendship right now. <laughs> you are one of my wisest friends and one of the most interesting people to hash everything out with because I think of you as somewhat of a mystic. This is the interesting thing to me, too, about you, is that you're not even begrudgingly in the private eye. Like, you're too cool for the private eye, or the public eye, in my estimation. No, but it's interesting to me. And then the way that I think when I first met you, it was the whole age-appropriate conversation, because you yeah. have white hair. And then you yeah. were like, wait, I'm actually <laughs> significantly younger. But yeah, there's that. There's that. <laughs> I mean, what's interesting about life is that you never dream, you know, you set out, you know, to have an interesting life, to solve problems, to, you know, create, to be present for yourself and others. And then the conversations that you end up being in sometimes you're like, wow, this is not what I pictured. Right. Right. At all. Yeah. And then you're like, I think there's that opportunity about to ask about control, whether, and this is, I'm thinking about this as an artist, like. I'm starting a painting. It's not going how I planned, but it's going really well, but in a very different direction. Do I go with the different direction or do I make, do I curtail the experiment and try to guide the, th- the creativity back to what I planned? And I think I live my life like making the, you know, the, the first option, which is like, this is not what I planned, but this is very living. Let's see what's there, which can be really wonderful, but it can also be terrifying. Mm -hmm. No, so terrifying and requires a bravery, as you just said, where you're in a way where you're like, I didn't actually sign up for this. And yet (laughs) this is where we're going. And here we are, you know, like, yeah. Well, and it's love. I mean, that's the other thing, too, that's like beautiful about the book and about sort of what we're even talking about is that it's love. And so you go where love leads you. And sometimes it's into strange waters where suddenly you're representative of all women over the age of 40 everywhere. Did you know that? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's funny because I think I remember just because I was always very identified with the mind and creative life, which is you know, an interior painters are very solitary in our profession. You know, we are alone a lot of the time. I'm very much a hermit in that process. And, you know, like anyone who has a creative practice, when you're in the flow, hours can go by and suddenly you're like, wait, how did, where did the day go? I was just gluing, you know, little tiny things to something else, you know? 
and 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 so then to wake up and rem- be reminded no i'm not just in the mind no my life isn't just interior it's also being looked at and i understood that being looked at like how to be in the world in the gaze in a very academic way and i don't yeah. like like this i my my instinct about it was academic i mean literally academic like i understood being in the public eye as being a teacher or being a professor. My parents were both professors. So that's how I understood it. So it's interesting having chosen not to be an academic, you know, not to pursue a doctorate or further graduate work after my master's and become an artist. It was really going against everything I knew how to do. You mm. know? So I often ask to circle back to your lovely question or like compliment about being mystical I often ask, like, is the journey of being an artist a spiritual journey? You know, am I, or am I, uh, you know, which, how, what's the relationship between the spiritual journey and the artistic practice? Am I, am I really sort of a mystic concealing myself in this world as an artist so as not to terrify everyone? Or, or is the journey of an artist a spiritual journey? And yeah. I don't know, you know, I don't think I need to answer that question, but I'm very aware of the relationship. Well, it's funny. I majored in art and English, art only because it was so fun and it was a form of therapy for me. I am te- ter- technically terrible. I had good ideas, but technically I'm a terrible artist. But there, it, it is, I'm gr- very grateful for the process, sort of what you were talking about, taking painting. My focus was in photography, but I had to take a lot of studio painting classes and sort of being there and being in the middle where it's like, what the F is this? Like, this looks... This is truly terrible, probably was, but then having to keep going, right? And like be led through the experience of making something that somehow resulted in an acceptable enough piece. I know this is your, we're we're talking about operating at different levels, but there is a certain faith that's required of making anything. And it's true for writing too, where you're in the middle, the messy middle, and you're like, I don't even know what this is. And I just have to keep going. I love that because, you know, so often we deride people who have a great idea in their head and don't take action. Like so much of the, I don't know whether it's self-help or coaching or teaching industry around creativity is let me help you get all those beautiful ideas out of your head and onto paper or onto canvas. But you know what? The ideas are beautiful. And sometimes maybe having beautiful ideas that are never realized is actually a gorgeous thing. Right. Because yeah. the minute you start trying to put down that vision in your head onto paper, onto canvas, into a film, you enter into it's never going to live up to the image in my head. And so yeah. that is that moment of the museum for one, which is really like an incredible thing that's a consolation. I'm so grateful to the images in my head that I will never realize. Because that's mm. when I lay in bed with my private museum at night and I just look through all those beautiful things that are in there and I can never make real, I treasure them. Because there is that disappointment that happens when you say, okay, I have this great idea and now I'm going to go put it into the world and it can't live up to what's in your head, you know? And that process is the incredible process of making in reality, which is a whole different thing than having a, mu- a private museum of head treasures. <laughs> oh but Alexandra wait say more I mean that's such a I've never really thought about that but this idea that whatever we create can never live up to the fantasy 
what is why is that just what it is to be I mean it's part of being you know think of it if, if like we are channeling things through our you know through our heads you know first we're getting them the idea the spark in our mind and then we go into reality yeah the first step is the disappointment that we live in a 3d material world and that we're you know trying to apply you know something physical or tangible to something that's purely electrical and made of light in our own interior cinemas and that disappointment is the first step and i'd say the second step is the reconciliation to the material world like okay now i'm making something that i didn't imagine it's not going like i imagined but it's going and then when you finish the object thing book then it has the power to take you on a journey that you never would have dreamt had you kept the idea in your interior museum and then that shifts your imagination you have more more artwork gets collected in the interior museum and but and then as you grow older as a maker you see that distinction right the distinction between the beautiful interior museum and the museum in reality of things that you've actually made and done and the stories attached to the making and doing that have Mm. changed your life i have painted so many people into my life you know i i said this to my wonderful art dealer in Berlin, I said, you know, I wouldn't know you if I hadn't painted this painting, you know, mm. we, we, we'd shown a specific painting and she said, no, that's not true. And I said, no, it actually, it is true. I wouldn't, because we like each other so much as people, we forgot that we were introduced via a, a work of art. And I think that's, what's interesting is that the things we make connect us again to people through a, a language that we're not totally in control of. Mm. So that we started this, this, this wonderful eddy of conversation talking about control. We have control over the images in our mind. We have to let go of control as we, you know, try to, to birth things into the world. And in that we are reconnected with new people and ideas that then confirm certain things for us you know when you were talking about being a student you know you were like oh that realization things in my mind are really hard to put into the world and then they're also (laughs) in dialogue with people I don't have control over their opinions oh god that's the whole other thing it's like the wall of then perception yeah and the energetic exchange of how what you put out into the world or who you are in the world or how you're perceived and then what other people, the stories that they create from that, or like what that exists. And then there's the energetic exchange of all of this, right? Which is so, I, I, I mean, <laughs> I can't articulate or understand that. But like, you know, as being someone who's n- noticed when you're in the world, like the energy that is coming, that I'm sure you perceive is very interesting. It's a very interesting way to move throughout the world and I'm going to put words in your mouth, but as someone who's like, I didn't actually, you didn't create that, right? But now you're in this vortex of, well, that's like a projection you know, distortion. When you, re- when you realize, yeah, you're in the vortex of projection. What I would say is that, you know, we always are. It's just, yeah. you know, when you're in the in in the public as a creative person, then it's a vortex. It's just mag- it's magnified in scale, but it's not the actual gaze that's different so I think yeah you know whether you're a kid in a playground or you know someone on a red carpet it's the similar human 
exchange of looking and perceiving and comparing and narrating and interpreting and misinterpreting just at a, at a, at a bigger scale. But then I, you know, I always say to students when I work at art schools or any school that my goal for them as a student and if, with me as the teacher is just to build a creative life. You don't need to become yeah. an artist because being an artist is a, a specific relationship to a gaze or a series of conventions that if you don't fit into that, that's okay. But if you're, you, you're, everyone is creative, every single one of us. And so yeah. how do we tap into what that is and then accept what that looks like? You know, for me, I think the biggest surprise when I was in my twenties is that I went to college. I love that. I didn't actually know you were an art major in college. I ended up being <laughs> one, but I went to college as a math major and I just of sat course. in the classroom, you know, the first semester and thought, there are two other people in my linear algebra honors class. And I was like, I just can't do this. I can't do it because I don't want to sit in this room with these two people for the next four years. And I, because I just don't think that's what I'm here to do. And I also knew that I wasn't going to be fluent at math, you know, and, and that ultimately when I thought about my life, I, I didn't, I wanted to take some sort of risk to speak a language that made me feel at home in my own body. Yeah. And so then I became a historian and an artist at two separate fields. And I, 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 you know, it took me a long time to really take the risk to be an artist. I would say late twenties. Yeah. I really felt it. And Ben was like, Oh, okay. I have to become an institution of one. And, and it was a really wild moment. Like I kept searching until I was about 30 for somewhere that I belonged, like, you know, the institution where I belonged. Mm. Instead, I had to make it myself. Pulling the Thread is sponsored by BetterHelp. Sometimes Max, my oldest, tells me he wants to go in the back of the house and talk. What he means by this is purely the verb. He doesn't want to have a conversation. He wants to talk, to vent and unload, to fill me with factoids, Mom, want to know 40 things about acid rain, but more often to get things off his chest. It's fascinating to listen to him and what he perceives to be injustices, annoyances, and harms. I recognize that in those moments, he doesn't want advice or for me to hire mind him or for me to justify his own feelings to him, but simply to be a container for the one-sided stream, to just listen. I recognize what he's doing because I do it every week, too in therapy. I was thinking just the other week that it's rare to find someone who will just listen, maybe point out some patterns or hold me accountable when I say something wild. Wait, Elise, pause. Do you really feel that about yourself? Or why do you think you care about this so much? But aside from these moments of intervention, when my therapist makes me reflect or feel, I'm doing the talking. And it helps me feel so much freer. Thank God for therapy. This is one of the reasons I'm very excited for therapeutic solutions like BetterHelp. They have licensed therapists who are available worldwide and specialize in depression, anxiety, sleep disturbances, trauma, anger, family conflicts, LGBTQA issues, grief, and self-esteem. BetterHelp is online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist, so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to match with the therapist. If things aren't clicking, you can easily switch to a new therapist anytime. 
It couldn't be simpler. No waiting rooms, no traffic, no endless searching for the right therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com PTT today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash P-T-T. I want to talk about sort of that particular evolution because I think it's so significant, like when you get to call yourself the thing. But I just, I need to just <laughs> say, I was a mathlete. And you were a mathlete? I was a mathlete. I went to the National Math Counts competition when I was in eighth grade, representing the great state of Montana. I was so advanced in math. I went to this hippie school and we had an incredible math teacher that I, in high school, and Alexander and I both went to boarding school, but I did linear AB, linear linear algebra AB, linear algebra BC, math topics one, math topics two. Like I was like on my own independent study and then I went to college and I never took another math class. That's so bizarre. Um, I never knew this about us. I mean, I, <laughs> I didn't have, you know, when I was in a public high school and when I was 14, they ran out of classes. Mm-hmm. So that's this is why, why I went to boarding school. Yeah. That's why I went to boarding school because I mean, my mom was like, you know, you can go to college now. And I was like, I'm 14 years old. Like I can't actually handle that emotionally and the good thing about boarding school is that there there were kids who were a lot smarter than me and then when I went to college I had the double luck of having already lived away from home for many years and that and you know having had the education I did but I I did I realized that there was something about humans that I was really interested in when I just looked at again the possibility for storytelling and connection And I think I just took this minute and looked at what sort of like a math life would look like. And, you know, you read about these incredible people who have special wiring and they're living with their moms and, you know, spouting theorems. And and that's extraordinary. But I was like, I don't think that's my path. But it's (laughs) math is a spiritual language, too. I mean, it's a way of understanding and decoding the universe. And that was it's so appealing. And the pattern recognition. So what I realized in math, like my favorite things were those, was discrete math. You know, when you're like how to most efficiently distribute the mail, if you're, you know, like I love solving things like that and math making. And I think that is present in everything I do. Yeah. I also, you know, I have an eye for pattern recognition. So I just, you know, like we'll go to a new country and I'll be like, okay, everyone who's, bourgeois in this country wears a purple tie and a lavender shirt you know like I'll see these patterns and and I can't help but sort of like count (laughs) how many times I've seen them or you know it's just that recognition and part of that comes from I think being growing up in the way that I did with two parents I'm what's called a third culture kid so I was brought up in a culture that was different from that of my parents and who weren't from the same culture either. And and I think that comes, that recognition comes from when you're not really from a place. And mm. when I think of all these talents, you know, and when I say talents, I really mean that in relation to me as a child, you know, like, because you look at a kid and there's like native talents that kids have yeah. and you can work with them or against them, I guess, in the parenting equation. And so for me, the t- native talents I had were like pattern recognition and the acute awareness 
of difference across cultures and and not in a way like we talk about it today but just like okay these people speak this language that you know like power dynamics and all uh, and 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 yeah so of course I became an artist yeah <laughs> so talk to me about owning that I mean I've sort of been on my own journey as you have been participant in of instead of just writing things I'm a writer and sort of getting comfortable claiming that or an author difficult for me to authorize myself um, to put your name on your own writing you to know. put my name on stuff yes after ghostwriting so many books and yeah you are an artist I feel like and and in in college besides not really having any talent I never I was so par- I was like I'm not an artist I'm just a, I'm an art student I'm just an art student and some people had no problem calling themselves artists but to me it feels like that's a really difficult leap I think that's a really difficult leap for a lot of people when do you as a creative when can you lay claim to being something or is that just like in my head is that just like my own warped insecurity no, I think that's a really le- legitimate and I'm actually grateful to you that you, you know, said you were an art student, basically, you know, that you were an amateur. I think I wish more people did that, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> I think it would be easier, make their lives easier. You know, when we play baseball on the weekends, say, we don't say we're baseball players. And so that sense of perceived excellence. Like there's something about art that I find really, you know, it is funny when people identify as artists, you know, you go like the idea of like, what's the line of professionalism? It's hard. Yeah, I think it's hard for people to see it. You definitely know it when you're inside one of many art worlds, because there's so many codes and abilities and talents. So it is one of those things, you know, I, to add to sort of the math art history dynamic of college, I also played basketball in college. And I think about that, that I would never, you know, the two things go hand in hand for me are sort of like the athleticism, the body discipline that I got from sports. And I think that I learned how to be an artist by doing both at the same time, by having, like seeing what, that you had to practice, that you had to play and that you lost often until you got yeah. better. And I, that, so, so for me, I really have correlated sports my sports practice and my artistic practice. So I understand when something is good and when it's not, like, what does it mean, you know, to work out privately and push yourself to the the limit of where you are and then go and win or lose a game because you're in relationship to other people's practices. And I think that the the arts are a lot more like sports and should be considered more like sports in terms of a, you know, we fight for title nine, we fight, to have children have sports because it exercises the body, the mind, teaches us to play well with others and self-discipline. And art is, for me, is, is is fundamentally the same. So if we could say like, you know, I'm in the T-ball of my art career. <laughs> <laughs> I made it to the little leagues, you know, but I think that is, that's probably the most accurate, you know, that, that there is mastery and yeah. that there is apprenticeship, that there are all these stages of, of creative life that are finished. And who decides? Like, who pick, who's picking teams here? Like, how do you, mm-hmm. you know, like, how do you know that you have made it to the major leagues? Well, the great thing about being an artist is that you never do. You know, the biggest mistake I think 
emerging artists make, and I certainly made it, was that you think that you've had one success, one museum show, one thing. But the great thing is that there's so many more pathways than that. And what we're seeing right now, especially with the development of Web3 and NFTs, is that a lot more people are identifying as artists. And there's a lot more economic pathways to success than there used to be because of disciplines sort of fading one into the next. But I think it's really important to not, you know, to not play a game. I mean, it's funny because like that notion of sports we're just talking about, when you say play a game, when it comes to art, it's like that you're trying to game a system and for something to be sustaining over time, to really do anything over time. I mean, you can pretend to like potato salad with mayonnaise for your whole life, but if you don't like it, that's going to become arduous and grueling. You mm -hmm. know, it, the most authentic careers, the people who have success over time are doing what they really like to do when no one is looking. Right. Which is the same thing as when everyone is looking. So you know, sometimes artists have extraordinarily strange work and you think, how is this person with this, you know, whatever the images or theme is so successful? And you, you realize that it's not the, you know, the rabbits, you know, jumping and doing pickle dances. That's what's interesting. It's the, it's the fact that this person has dedicated their life. So it's again, yeah. the pattern. Um, well, and that's so important, This the focus on, or not even the focus, but the reverence for the process. The same is true of writing. And obviously, you publish books and make books as well. If there's no, the process of the writing a book has to be the compensation for writing a book. Like you can't ever do anything creative with the expectation or hope that you'll be remunerated or rewarded by its reception because you will be destroyed. Like for, I mean, how many artists make it into museums, right? How many yeah. books get the front page of the New York Times book review? Like if, if the expectation is that whatever you're making will, the end result will validate the effort, you're, you're going to hurt, I think. It has to be something that you just have to do. Yeah. I mean, one of my favorite painters is Mirandi. And he was at home most of his life painting just a small number of vessels and jars. Mm -hmm. you no. Know? And for years. But he showed us more about paint and color and form and shape than almost anyone else. You know, so if you said to someone, Yeah, your life as a great painter is gonna be living at home and painting your pots and jars for 30 years. That's not what people imagine. Right. Right. But I, I think that's it, that there's this idea. I think of this in writing. Some of the best books are about something that happened five minutes on the side. You know, you think about Clarice Lispector writing about a, a cockroach in a maid's room, you know, that honestly it's what triggers showing thought or showing how thought works. The trigger itself can be something domestic or small, you know, it doesn't have to be a big event. It can be, you know, and, and that's what life is, is a practice, right? That you show up with the circumstances you have and the materials you have. And I think those are the best artists, right? That, yeah. And makers that they're not, 
just running and buying every material or taking every class. I mean, that is one way to be creative, but it's also following a set of conventions and rules. And so the idea of finding that balance between understanding what the conventions are, but then understanding that, no, I'm being drawn to try this other, this other approach to storytelling. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense only to me. And then that gift of reception, right? Like that someone receives what you made and goes, Oh my gosh, I get it. Or I, you know, thank you. And, and also in that process, realizing that often it's the accident that makes the best work, right? The surprise, all these things. So. Wondering what to give your mom or wife or daughter or friend or godmother for Mother's Day? From someone who cares a lot about her bed and sleep, may I recommend something from Cozy Earth? In fact, Becoming a mom and suffering through its required sleep deprivation is where my obsession with sleep started, so it's one of those gifts that might really bring things full circle. After all, women in particular are really impacted by sleep deprivation, which has massive implications for our health. Between the hypervigilance of motherhood and the hot flashes of perimenopause and menopause, we get a raw sleep deal. So let me tell you about giving women you love their best night's sleep ever let me tell you about Cozy Earth. Their sheets are made from viscose from bamboo and they are indescribably soft. So soft, like a bed hug, like no other. Now, I'm not the only mega Cozy Earth fan. Every single year since 2018, Cozy Earth products have been named as one of Oprah's favorite things. Oprah picked their best-selling bamboo sheet set because they're temperature-regulating and incredibly soft, and she picked their joggers and their socks and their pajamas Meanwhile, Cozy Earth doesn't just make sheets, they also make pillows, blankets, and more. Cozy Earth makes their products by sourcing responsibly. They use the best suppliers with an eye toward quality, responsible production, cutting-edge technology, and premium materials. They're also incredibly durable. They get better with every wear, and they have an enhanced weave that is guaranteed not to pill even after washing and drying. All Cozy Earth products can be returned or exchanged within 100 days and include an additional 10-year warranty against defects. This Mother's Day, treat mom to the luxury she deserves with Cozy Earth bedding and sleepwear and prioritize her self-care and sleep health. She deserves it. Don't forget to use my promo code THREAD at checkout for 35% off at CozyEarth.com. After placing your order, select podcast in the survey and select my show in the drop-down menu that follows so they know that we sent you. Where is the joy for you as someone who Mm. practices privately as an artist and then also has like a, a public, you know, you were just in South Korea showing like you have a public life around art and a public life in general. Like what is the part that feeds you? Luckily for me, I'm very easily amused. I mean, there, you know, so for me, I was like, I brought all these truffles back from Korea because someone found out that I love chocolate and they're amazing, you know, and just that. But what, when I say what that is, it's I'm enjoying the artistry of a chocolatier and I'm enjoying mm-hmm. the fact that someone across a language I don't speak recognize that I love chocolate. So there's a generosity. I think for me, that's what art is. It's connecting to others through mm-hmm. small gestures, sometimes large gestures, and finding that we are all, we have much more in common than we do 
indifference. Yeah. And that is a surprise. I mean, it's a surprise to the opposite when, you know, you, you, you assume that people share your expectations. I mean, that's, that's the, those are the disappointments in life, but the surprise and the joy comes from those moments, right. Of, of finding commonalities. I also love for me, I think a lot about one of my dear friends, Steve Roden and I, we did a show at the Pasadena Museum of California Art. I think it was 2014 or 2015. And we would often talk about, you know, collaborating with oneself. And for me, mm. that joy, like back to college, I always felt that in college, I never got to finish anything that like, you know, the arc of an idea was like this. And then the deadline, like, oh, it would come and my idea would smash into it. And again, not be realized you know, the paper about the Swedish economy wasn't as good as I wanted it to be or whatever. But so I wanted as an artist to be able to follow the entire arc of an idea, which is what I let myself do. And Steve hmm. and I would talk a lot about, you know, we talk a lot about collaboration with other people, but you collaborate with yourself. Like I paint hard almost every day. And when I leave the studio, I'm, I've painted everything I have inside of me for that day. And I just, look sometimes and I go I don't know what to do next or I'll, I'll say oh you know there's that purple line I'll start with that tomorrow and then I come in the studio after you know a good night's sleep and I'm like wow who the hell did this and then I get to pick up and add to the painting which is basically a collaboration with who I was the day before and the day before that mm -hmm. and I love that aspect like that painting is it's an accrual of traces of the me's I've been over multiple days. And it's a conversation with my past self, which I just, I love. And so the joy for me lies in reading who I was yesterday and adding to that and, and paint and having that record and painting. And, and I also, you know, I'm, I'm a pretty minimalist person in terms of how I like to live, the colors I like to wear or, or, you know, but in painting, I like the opposite. It's just like every color, maximalist. And I love that freedom, right? Mm -hmm. To make the biggest mess and then somehow bring it into cohesive balance. Mm -hmm. So it is an exercise in conversation with self. Yeah. That every I- Every time, I mean, it's so beautiful. Time. Every yeah. time, and, and so people always ask that, you know, that chestnut about how do you know when a painting's done? And I, and I, and I think it's because I've, I've achieved for me some sort of exquisite harmony where mm -hmm. if I keep going, I'll ruin it. And, and so sometimes I have to paint back to what it was yesterday because I went a step too far. And then I have that, the, you know, the private joy of the studio and then the joy of putting it into the world and having people respond as unexpectedly as the artwork is to me to begin with. So there is this notion that the thing I'm making, I don't know if channeling is the right wor word, but you know, that I'm not trying to control it. Let's talk about love because that's sort of the heartbeat of at least this latest project, but it's such an interesting, it's it's so heady in, in the world of Alexandra Grant, right? Because <laughs> love is the thing that you can't sell or buy. It's an indefinable, ineffable quality that is ultimately the greatest motivator that we have in our lives. And you've made it – well, first, let's we, – we sort of set this up for people, why you created the foundation, the work, and as like a self-sustaining 
entity and sort of the way that we collectively lean on artists for philanthropy. Yeah. Thank you. Interesting, right? Yeah. It's fascinating. I mean, yeah. I mean, I had been a professional artist for about, you know, almost, I'd been in LA, let's just say, I'd been working in, in LA as a professional artist for about seven years. And what I realized is that I was asked all the time to donate small works to nonprofits to raise money. And there's a level where you say, okay, that's great. This auction, people are going to see my work. It'll, you know, lead me to have more opportunities. Someone might buy something from the studio or a curator might see it. So there's, you know, real motivations, but for artists, there's no tax write-off. So you can only write off the cost of the materials. And Mm. so it, it, I began to see it as over time, like, oh, I'm, I might be giving away more work than I actually can make. And, and it, might be taken away from my career. So that so that was one sort of question. And the next was I went to, you know, a Quaker college. I was brought up by people who talked all about civic society all the time. You know, my mom was a political scientist. My godparents were as well. And and I really was thinking about I want to give back and I want to do it with my art. And this opportunity to give, like I could see, you know, photographers were like you know, able to print a hundred of their one photo. And so they could give very generously without losing the studio for a painter. Mm -hmm. That's different. So when I stumbled upon the love symbol, I really, you know, saw it as an opportunity. Okay, wait, here's something that I can make that I can create a specific. And I hate to use the word brand because I think it's overused, but I have a brand that I can make for philanthropy. And it it solved the problem of wanting to make something that was solving the problem of being asked to raise money, but kept the studio intact. Yeah. Well, it is a brand too, which is is interesting. It's like a physical brand. And I have it branded on my arm now, you know? (laughs) So yeah, it's literally a brand. And so I trademarked it. And that was a very interesting experience because immediately I was sued in trademark court because a corporation named Cartier declared that they owned love in in several categories, which was fascinating to me as a language-based artist that, you know, corporations would claim ownership of concepts like love. And, but then I also realized, well, if they are seeing me as something to compete against, then I own something that has a lot of value, you know? And I was looking at Robert Indiana and his beautiful love symbol, which was really an inspiration for me and, and, and saw, you know, that he didn't control where the, where the monies flowed. So the way we have it structured today is that the Grant Love Project is a, it's an artist project. So it's a, it's a business where we work with artists and artisans and printers and, you know, all sorts of people. And then the, the, the foundation aspect is hot housed under the care of the Entertainment Industry Foundation, which has projects by so many different wonderful artists from Cher to Colin Kaepernick and many more. And so we do, are able to, you know, do the philanthropic work with them. And in the past, you know, it was really an, uh, an alchemy Um partnering with Project Angel Food, Heart of Los Angeles, different organizations that serve underserved communities and create art for them to sell and auction and give away. It really made me value what I do as an artist in a different way because I could say, you know, this neon sculpture with love equaled, you know, this many meals for underserved Mm -hmm. and ill people. And the feedback loop for me was one of, in, in a world where our creativity, 
you know, is valued success and failure, you know, they're, they're hard to value. You know, sometimes we have the the support of our peers some when we don't have market value, but it, it's really remarkable to be able to change to barter, right? Like I'm bartering by giving this thing that then becomes money that can then become an, you know, part of an after school program. So it's been deeply satisfying. I mean, my idea of love really is that we have to take care of ourselves first. I mean, that's mm. part of why I love you and your explorations about self-care and mental health and physical care. And then we are in relationship with our family and friends, but this idea of, of loving people that we don't know, how do we do that? And how do we do it ethically? Right. In a moment when we're talking about, you know, post-colonialism and, um, not wanting to impose, I mean, philanthropy is very problematic sometimes because it imposes a value system on the recipient. And so I'm, I'm, I really love to think about like, how do we have exchanges between people with different levels of power that put people in the same framework? Right. We're in a, that's so love. creative. Yeah. yeah. Love is that. Okay. Let's define what that is, you know, across our difference. Yeah. And then participate in it in a way that's like cuts in so many different directions, which I think is so very meta and very interesting. And I'm really annoyed that Facebook owns meta, by the way. Speaking of, you know, corporate interest taking over a <laughs> word and it has, you know, it's backfired a little bit for them, but think about Facebook. I mean, they own the word face, you know, right. to begin with. But so wild. Yeah. I mean, when we really think about owning language or where language comes from and wanting to control language, I mean, that's a whole, that's a whole politics as well, which is why, you know, the French writer Helen Sixou has always been such a, you know, I was about to say a spirit animal for me, but she's more than, you know, she's been a mentor and an inspiration because she had this idea of writing écriture femina. So writing feminine writing as a way of pushing back against the power and authority of language. I'm exceedingly careful about what I buy, not only because I live in a 1,500-square-foot house with children who sure have an awful lot of stuff, but also because I try to be conscious about everything I use. And sure, I want to use everything I buy. In addition, thanks to a decade in the wellness industry, I am very keyed into product claims and product content. This is why I like Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus Multivitamin, which is clinically backed with high-quality, traceable key ingredients in clean, bioavailable forms. I also like their Symbiotic Plus 2, which is a probiotic that's simple and effective. Ritual makes the most elegant multivitamin around. Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus has everything you need, specifically nine key nutrients in two capsules per day. Their unique beetlitten oil is so slick it's actually patented, and their capsule has a delayed-release design, which is brilliant and essential, to help make it gentle on an empty stomach. And Ritual studies their vitamins, which is not the standard in the industry. Ritual conducted a university-led clinical trial for their Essential for Women 18-plus multivitamin to assess its efficacy. The results, it increased vitamin D levels by 43% and omega-3 DHA levels by 41% in just 12 weeks. As most of us are getting far less sun right now, vitamin D supplementation is essential. Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus is one of the few women's multis that's USP verified 
meaning what's on the label is what's in the formula. Only about 1% of supplement brands on the market have the USP verified mark. It's also soy-free, gluten-free, vegan-friendly, and formulated without GMOs. Did I also mention that Ritual is a certified B Corp and female-founded? Nothing makes me happier than these two facts. No more shady business. Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus is a multivitamin you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month at ritual.com slash thread. Start Ritual or add Essential for Women 18 Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash thread for 25% off. So when you, I know you gave us some sort of a version of, of love. And I mean, I think of it as an essential animating energy for all of us or the essential, is it the essential animating energy? How do you think about it? You know, there is, when I think about that idea of animated energy, I think about chi and life force, right? That part of life force is just waking up in the morning and being alive. Like, what is that? We're all coming to grips with just our electrical impulses, but love at first, you know, is the feeling that we don't have control over, you know, think about the enthusiasm you fit, you know, you feel when you, when you're falling in love with another person or a friend, just a stranger that you've never met, you know, it's that it's a fire for sure. Yeah. (laughs) But it is very much tied to, to life. Right. And I think the happiest people I know are people who are in alignment with that inner life and inner fire and that work with it instead of against it. Right. Yeah, no, certainly. What do you, I mean, I know some of your hopes and dreams, but as an, (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, that deserves a dance. But when you think about, I mean, you create in so many different formats, right. And you have sort of, I would say participated in participated in. Yeah. And you have lots of sort of these little businesses and enterprises. I mean, you're just, you're fascinating to me and sort of like, I feel like you just, you come up in the cracks to the sidewalk, like in a way, you know? I love Um, that. I mean, part of why your, your metaphor is so apt for me is that, you know, like many artists, I, I, I got some opportunities and I'm very grateful for the orthodox opportunities that I've been given, but none of those are enough to sustain a creative practice. You know, that one wins a grant, it's exceptionally, you know, an honor, but then you're like, I can't actually run a studio on this $10,000. So like most artists, you have to create opportunities between the cracks and pop up there. And I've just owned you know, when I was teaching, I would say even 10 years ago, and I used the word artist, you know, would say entrepreneurship. Some people would get really scared by it in the art world because, you know, it's taboo to talk about money. But I yeah. love to talk about money, especially in terms of arts education, because so many students are women. And then when you get into the professional art world, you look at the numbers and they're terrible, you know, for women. Yeah. And then we're just talking about women as a category. What about trans women or, you know, queer people or, you know, women of color and international, you know, it's, it's, the numbers are very, very small. So anyone who is eccentric and by eccentric, I mean, not centered, like not centered privilege, is going to have a creative life that's being weeds through the cracks. 
It has to. I mean, that's one of the things that I really admire about you too, is the fact that you recognize, you know, it's your interest in NFTs and crypto, which I, you know, kind of puts me to sleep a little bit or just like, I don't understand. I'm so happy to bore you anytime with that. (laughs) No, but, but the (laughs) fact that you do, even as a creative person who theoretically, I think people look at you in, in your public life and could probably be like, oh, she doesn't need money. And you're like, no, actually I do. I support myself. I have a studio that I, I, this is me. This is an enter. I'm an, I am a, my own thing. Yeah. I'm an, I'm an adult. And one of the things that I think has been very important to me, and I think any person, you know, is to have a budget and to have your own budget and to make within your budget. I and mean, we've all yeah. been part of projects at a certain point in our life that have had infinite budgets and it doesn't make the projects any good. You know, having a budget and having that structure you know, scarcity is one of the biggest drivers for creativity, you know, not if you're stuck there forever, but you know, limitation is what drives creativity. So I I'm very committed to, you know, staying within my community and then using anything that I have that's extra in order to give back to the community. Yeah. That looking at ex artist books, but I reinvested, I, you know, always in creating more, which is, you know, maybe I, at some point I have to look at my own amount of energy, like the budget of my energy, because sometimes I think, oh gosh, you know, here I am about to start some something new. But yeah, I I I I really am a working artist with a yeah. working studio who shows up, and I like to say that how I feel about being an artist is in being an elevator person. And I'm in an elevator between the penthouse and the basement. And I think every artist is you, you can go to the parties in the penthouse and look at the view and drink the champagne, but you don't really live there as an artist. You, you know, you yeah. live in the elevator because you go down and you do the work in the basement. I mean, we're it's so interesting. I'm always at, at events picking paint out from my nails because I've just come from the studio and I just don't have the time you know, to deal with conventions like nail polish when I'm painting all day, you know, like it would be sort of an infinite thing where I'd have to have, you know, so. But, but that's so interesting too. I mean, and you think about this idea. So there are multiple ideas here. One, that there's something out of harmony for art and money to coexist for the artist, right? Like that there's this idea of poor starving artists and you go back into the Renaissance, this idea of patrons, right? Like the always patrons, wealthy patrons who were supporting these artists, Michelangelo, whatever. And so it's this really old story, I think, that we have this romantic idea and it's such a disservice, A, to artists who need to support themselves and B, to this idea of artists participating in the economy of their own work, which I know NFT, like the the whole world of crypto, Ethereum, et cetera, hopes to solve. I kind of know as much as that. But it's interesting to, to meet you as a person and culture who exists, as you said, between the penthouse and the basement. Yeah. And why you need to go back to the, ba- like why you like the basement. Right. I mean, I think anyone on a spiritual journey is an elevator person too. If you think about it, you know, yeah, you, you enlightenment can happen in the penthouse, but you have to have your feet on the ground in the ground. And I think that's the, that's the spiritual journey is being an elevator person. I mean, the, the, 
I think, again, we talked about earlier in the conversation, the idea that when we, you know, we have the beautiful images in our museum of the mind, and when we enter them into the world, the first disappointment happens. I mean, for anyone studying art, the first great disappointment is putting their work into the world and realizing that there is a market. The market is a great disappointment and it's not accurate, you know, because so much fashion is involved. Most people in the art world are people of the ear rather than people of the eye are listening Mm -hmm. to other people say why things are important. People buy art, they have no idea why, you know, just because they heard so-and-so else was, you know, buying it. So it's really important to understand that the market is a disappointment, but then it's also fascinating, right? That, you know, we look at the, opioid crisis you know and the Sackler family donated wings to every museum so there is a money laundering aspect that's the legal money laundering you know after illegal drugs and arms the black market of art is the third largest black market on planet earth because it's easier to transport a small valuable artifact than it is you know a thousand gold bars across borders but that reconciliation like okay the art world isn't what I thought it was. There's a market involved. Some of it is a black market. You know, philanthropy itself is highly problematic because corporations use it to sort of launder their reputations and et cetera, et cetera. But that's actually where the fun begins, I think. When you realize that all of these transactions are also codes and encoded. And part of, you know, to segue nicely to the book <laughs> I have mine right over there. The the Love Project became this, you know, way of talking about art as a transaction and really looking at, well, what happens when instead of a vertical philanthropy, we have a horizontal philanthropy. When an artist supports another artist, is that the same or different than when mm. someone who might be living in the penthouse gives to someone living and working in the basement? So you know, how do these questions work? I I don't know if I've answered the question, but I certainly hope that the problematics of money, that people can talk about it and, and somehow not feel uncomfortable or that it compromises the, the this original downloading of the spirit images from their heads as they join mm. the world. A lot of people become cynical once they encounter the market and create all sorts of defenses for me it just is it doesn't touch the it doesn't touch the integrity of the of the spiritual journey of art you know which is why i'm able to work every day and look at the market and go okay today it's hot today it's cool but it doesn't touch how i think about being an artist I mean, some days it's a bummer, you know, but, and some, you can't help but get excited when, when you, when a painting sells, you know, that's the same thing as a painting not selling. I mean, they're just sort of this to me, sort of the positive and negative of the same value, but the joy is still in making the work and not Mm -hmm. being disappointed. Yeah. By market exchange. What I do like about, you know, and now that the crypto market or part of it is crashing is that that the decentralized finance, people really begin to unpack and understand that centralized finance, crypto is failing, it's decentralized finance is is working, is that it's an opportunity for people who have been unbanked sort of refugees or people in smaller communities globally to have access to 
a way of making money and exchanging money that can be equal to their talents and keep them within the communities in which they function already. So there are new opportunities and experiments that are happening. I think the metaverse moment that we're in is one foot in reality and one foot, uh, you know, our phones, you know, we're all functioning in the metaverse when we deposit a bank check, you know, on our phones. So we're already there and many of us don't know it. But yeah, to me, it's a very exciting moment if each one of us can admit that we don't know what's going on 100%. You know what I mean? Like that if we're open to it. I'm so happy you all got to experience Alexandra. She's truly one of my wisest friends, both incredibly grounded and earthy and connected. And then she can really open her mind and go to far out mystical places. She's also very tall. So I like having tall friends. She's taller than I am. She's also fascinating to me as a public figure and not necessarily a begrudging public figure, just sort of, it's just not her, it's not her thing. It's not what she set out to do, but she is partnered up with our collective heartthrob. In fact, when I was introduced to her, I was like, I don't think I can be friends with her because I watch Speed a lot as a child. And um, this is too, too meta for me, but she is full of grace and empathy and joy. I think that probably also came through. She is, I've never seen her in a bad mood, which is something I would like to cultivate more in my life. There's a lot about her to respect and model ourselves after, even though we were talking about how um, it's a projection field of distortion. But she is one of those rare birds who is herself truly and fully without deviation and I wish we had more of those people in our midst all right I'll see you next week thanks for listening to this week's episode you can find show notes and full transcripts of the episodes at the elisepodcast.com Please sign up for my newsletter, I promise I won't spam you, or follow me on Instagram at Elise Lunen to get updates on new episodes. I'd also like to give a huge thank you to my sponsors who make this show possible. Please support them the way they support this podcast. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studio. If you enjoyed this episode, please listen, rate, review, and follow Pulling the Thread, available now for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Odyssey, or wherever you get your podcasts, i.e. wherever you're listening right now. I also want to thank you in advance for sharing any episodes with friends you think might like the show, because that is how podcasts grow. I want to give a shout out to Phil Svitek, Lauren LaGrasso, Serena Reagan, Mary-Kate McDonough, and the entire Cadence 13 team for producing these episodes, and to Valero Duvall for my key art. Take care of yourselves. I'll see you next week.
High schoolers are busy, but no one's too busy to help fight cancer. The Leukemia and Lymphoma Society is looking for their next student visionaries of the year. Could that be your child? High schoolers who participate in the seven-week philanthropic leadership development program gain valuable life skills like project management, communication, financial literacy, and entrepreneurship. Forming strong teams behind them, they fundraise for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society in honor of a pediatric blood cancer survivor right in their local community. Most importantly, this campaign is an opportunity for high schoolers to engage in meaningful work within their community and make a real impact on the lives of blood cancer patients and their families. Sound like something your child might be interested in? You can learn more about Student Visionaries of the Year or even nominate a student at lls.org students. That's lls.org students.